Hey guys, this particular podcast uh, goes into family law and goes into criminal law, which means we'll be discussing a couple of uh, details from some pretty horrific cases. Um, I just wanted to let you know so that you wouldn't be surprised when we start talking about abuse and horrible things. Anyway, welcome to the Good and Basic Podcast, a long-form conversation. This time, it's a special podcast, and so Joseph Fisher is not in the booth with me. Instead, I have my friend Jack from law school, and we're going to talk about law school, politics, religion, and uh, law, and possibly other things besides. So let's get started. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I'm fascinated with the experiences that you have had practicing law while in law school. Mm -hmm. And so we'll probably end up talking about that. And then you and I have talked about... um, previously the, the the policy considerations like to understand how complicated some of these questions are mm. uh, child protective services is one area where I mean it, there's there's a big tangle of the rights of children and the rights of parents and the rights of the state and trying to get it all to flow in a way that doesn't seem horrendously unjust is mm. uh, interesting all right yeah we should dive right in sure um, where would you like to start uh, anywhere anywhere is good all right um, Maybe I should start with how I happened upon my particular practice area. Would that yes, yes, that'd okay. be good. Especially since that gets into uh, how you figure out what you want to do after law school, which is something that both of us have been trying to figure out. Sure. I think that this is a common problem a lot of, especially first-year law students have, right, is they come into law school thinking it's something they were generally interested in. Most of them don't have prior connections, though. Um, I've seen that a lot with our classmates, yes. I think, right, where they, they come into law school, they have some idea vaguely of why they're in law school, but no real concrete ideas. And one thing that I find fascinating in our class is that it's often kind of a vague sense of calling. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be here, the rest of the path is completely dark. I know I'm supposed to be in law school, and then after that, it gets... Right, and to some degree, that's probably the product of being at a church university. But, of course, I I, I think there's something commendable in that. I I think that means that you're more open to different alternative paths as opposed to strictly one type of law. And also, the the initial motivation being a sense of calling, I mean, you might... be interested in it for the right reasons, and, mm. and those could help you lead in the right direction. There are a lot of wrong reasons reasons to practice law. Yes. I, um, I remember before we came to law school, before we had orientation, they I think they sent all of the incoming first-year students a book uh, talking about answering God's interrogatories. Do you remember reading that? No. Uh, well, I must have missed it. Uh, there was a uh, heavy emphasis in the book on not getting into this just for the money, that you'll be miserable if you enter the profession of law just for the money. And yep. it's true. You probably will be. Um, and that has colored to a large degree my professional search. Um, so when I started first year, I knew vaguely the kinds of things I was interested in, which is I, I liked working with people. I liked human interactions. I like drama a lot, actually. Really? I know I don't give it off. I don't like confrontation when I am the subject of the confrontation. <laughs> but if I am mediating conflict, I love it. I love being in the trenches and rolling in the mud. So is that an interest in drama itself or an interest in being useful to people who are having real conflict? I'm going to say probably a little bit of both. There's probably a selfish both. part of me that just likes being in the trenches. And then there is the the more austere part of me that, that wants to be helpful. Right? Okay, sure. Um, and, and there is real utility that you derive from helping other people resolve disputes. And, and really, law should be about that. You know, the degree that we get is a juris doctorate, right? Yep. In effect, we're supposed to be healing people who are suffering. My uncle, who's a personal injury lawyer, always says that the people who come into his office are having the worst day of their lives. And you have a chance to guide them through the next step and get them out feeling better about it. 
I am really interested in the, the role of the professions, uh, the original three professions that were taught at university, mm -hmm. which were law, medicine, and theology. And it was just those three. Right. And in all three of them, you have this... Uh, well, there's probably a fourth noble profession of teaching, too, I think. Yeah, scholarship. That right. was the latecomer to the table, where it's knowledge for knowledge's sake, where you're pushing the boundaries of knowledge itself. Mm. And then eventually we added economics, and it was all downhill from there. But... Um, <laughs> The, 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 those original three have this interesting property where you are in a relationship of dependence with someone, mm -hmm. where they, they depend upon you as an expert to solve their problem. I mean, when you're going to a doctor, you are trusting them with literally your body, your health, and your life. Right. And when you go to a lawyer, you're trusting them with your freedom, your finances, and uh, and the, the organization of your affairs. Right. And so, yeah, big stuff. Very complex principal-agent relationships and yeah. the tensions that come with that, too. Yep. Um, there really isn't another profession quite like the practice of law. The closest that we used to have is theology where your soul was on the line as an intermediary, but then after the Reformation, and I mean, now the closest you've got there is like maybe a counselor or a psychologist, like Perhaps. something along those lines. And as we'll get into in a minute, I think that I sometimes have to put on those hats as an attorney. And really? to some degree, that's the virtue of the particular practice area I'm in. But I think all attorneys... They have to wear a lot of hats. Especially in yours. Actually, let's let's talk more about the, the areas of uh, juvenile law. Sure. Yeah. So, um, again, when I when I came into law school, I didn't really know what I was going to do, right? And I we have a classmate, Zach, whose wife works for what's called the Office of Guardian Ad Litem. Um, so in juvenile court, the focus is on remediation. It's focused on healing. Again, in, in keeping with what I think is the original mission of law, right? Um and it's about ameliorating disputes between broken families. A lot of the time this involves pretty serious abuse or neglect or states of dependency, which basically means the children's needs aren't being met, but it's not necessarily through any fault of the parents, right? Um, and so I had never heard of this. I, I had read briefly on juvenile law prior to coming to law school. I read a case called In Re Galt, which is the probably the seminal case from the Supreme Court on juveniles. But that was about the extent of my experience with it. Um, we had a job fair in January. I don't remember if you were there or not, but Guardian Ad Litem had a table there. Um, and I had, you know, been introduced to them. I'd, I'd met Zach's wife a few times. And so I knew generally what their mission statement was. There was nobody at that table. Um, everybody really? there was, everybody there was either talking to the Utah attorney general's office or to some of those big name fancy pants firms. Right? Sure. And as will probably be revealed during this discussion, I'm not big on corporate law. I'm not big on big law. Um, and we'll get into that later. The For point sure. is, there was nobody at that table, right? And that was a little bit sad, to be honest with you. So I went up and I started talking to the office manager. Uh, the first question she asked me was, are you an L1? Uh, so in law school, the three grades, if you want to call it that, are 1L, 2L, 3L. So here we are as 3Ls, third-year law students about to yep. graduate, right? Uh, so, But she said L1. So right off the bat, I knew I was not necessarily dealing with... A fellow attorney. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and, and she's not a, a legal practitioner, but she sure does work with them, and she does a great job, right? And so I thought, this is a really humble kind of office. I could probably feel really comfortable here. Yeah. Um, Less pretentious. Yeah. And, I mean, my biggest fear with my professional career would be to just get lost in a sea of other professional and accomplished people, right? I like to be a fish in a small pond, right? Yeah. Um, and so about a month after that, I, I got in her contact information, and I was trying to actually get into a prosecutor's office. There were several different connections I was working to try to get into criminal prosecution because, again, I love those uh, human stories that are, are so prevalent in criminal law, right? Yeah. But they never panned out. And so 
eventually I decided to just reach out to the office manager cold call and say, can I have an extra set position? And they had room for me and I came aboard. Let's back up for just a second and talk about what a guardian ad litem is. So sure. in a typical uh, trial arrangement, you have an attorney for the, the, the for side and one for the against side. And it's yes. just two, it's totally binary, you fight it out and then the judge kind of just chooses between right. the two or the jury. In criminal prosecution, you'd have the prosecution and the defense. In a civil litigation, you'd have the plaintiff and the defendant. Right. So. And then... It gets complicated when you introduce children into this equation. So you've yes. got, say, a nasty divorce, or say you've got um, other situations where the interest of the child is different from the interest of the other parties. Right. And so you could say that, well, what the child, what would be in the best interest of the child? Who's representing the child? Is it the the attorney for the mom or the attorney for the dad? And Maybe in Utah, we decided third. it's neither one. Right? We needed a third option, and so right. you're. The guardian ad litem is the representative of specifically the interests of the child. Right. And that's been a, a long-standing practice with court, although in Utah we decided in 1994 that it needed to be a separate office of state government. So much like how you have your public defender's offices where they're automatically appointed, here we have people that are full-time guardian ad litems, and that's what they do. Guardians ad litem, I think is the proper plural there. Um, and so anytime there's an allegation of child abuse, neglect, or dependency, we're automatically appointed based on the jurisdiction that the alleged events occur. So is that usually civil or is it criminal? I mean, it's all civil. It's a it's civil juvenile. system. Usually there will be some attached criminal charges, but we aren't involved in the criminal side of things. Okay. So for instance, if you, if you commit, I don't know, aggravated sexual abuse of a child. Obviously, that's a crime for which the parent will be prosecuted. I'm not involved in that part of things. Okay. It's um, just the prosecutor taking care of that within the criminal law system. It's, it's, it's over there. Yes. This is an entirely civil proceeding, and it's kept separate from the rest because this isn't about allocating blame or guilt. It's about remediation, right, and healing. And in a case as severe as the one I just mentioned, maybe that wouldn't involve reunifying this parent with with the victim. Probably yeah, no. not. Um, there, yeah, are, no. there are certain situations in which there's an automatic presumption against reunifying parents with children, right? But generally, as a guardian ad litem, my job was to represent the best interests of the child in these disputes, right? Mm -hmm. So you have uh, the office of the state, so you have uh, Child Protective Services, which is a, a smaller branch of the, the Division of Child and Family Services. Um, who are making the initial determinations as to whether they believe abuse or neglect occurred. They get tens of thousands of reports every year. In Utah, every single adult is a mandatory reporter. That means if you see something, you are required by law to say something. Uh, it's about as expansive a mandatory reporter system as you'll see anywhere in the United States. Everyone has that obligation. Literally everyone. Wow. It's not limited to people in positions of trust, like your you know, clergy and parents, teachers, and teachers, that kind of thing. Yeah. It, it's literally every adult. Gosh. Um, First I've heard of it. That's good to know. Which means that <laughs> it's, it's, we'll probably talk about this later. It's amazing the degree to which your life is ruled by laws you're not even aware of. Or not um, quite. This is where I get my... my, my angry hat on and uh, I start talking about how statutes don't operate the same way that the common law does, but yes. whatever. Anyway, turning that back off for a minute, we'll get back to that <laughs> eventually. So this is how our conversations always seem to go at yeah. law school, right? Yeah, and yeah. we end up losing the plot five minutes in and, and we're gone. There's just too many plots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where was I? You're going to have to remind me Okay, so you, you, were, uh, you were explaining how uh, it's not always in the best interest of the child to reunify. There's sometimes when there's a presumption of we just cut it off, but when right. there's abuse or neglect, mm -hmm. you're and, involved. And, and those presumptions against reunification are statutory. So those okay. are prescribed in statute. In these particular cases, we need to not go that direction, right? Okay. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, the abuse or neglect that's alleged, it involves drug use by the parents. Uh, this can take the form of 
uh, say the mother is pregnant and is addicted to opiates or heroin. The child is born with withdrawal symptoms. They test the baby's meconium and it's positive for drugs. That gets the court involved right off the bat. Right? Okay. So DCFS, they get, again, tens of thousands of reports. And DCFS is Department of Child... The Division of Child and Family Services. Division in, of Child and Family in Services. In juvenile court, they'll often just call them the Division or DCFS. Okay. Um, nobody would ever say the full name. The, uh, juvenile court is littered with acronyms, which is part of what makes it so difficult. That's the government in a nutshell. We <laughs> yes, like basically. Um, and there is a lot of bureaucratic red tape and stuff, but I know how to navigate it now, so I feel pretty comfortable in it. Yeah. Um, so hopefully I can guide the rest of you watching through it. Um, so they have to make an initial finding as to whether they support al the allegations, right? And about half of the cases that are referred to them, they find that there's not enough evidence there. If there is, then they refer that to the Attorney General's office. So the Utah Attorney General's office has a division that's just the Child Protective Division, and they're the ones that are actually going to file the legal papers behind all of these allegations, right? So the, the case opens when DCFS supports findings of abuse, neglect, or dependency. They relay that information to the corresponding assistant attorney general, and he fires, he files a petition with the juvenile. And at this point, the case is ongoing, and you can the case is in. open now. Okay, right, and so that's when I'll get called in. This is the typical situation when I get called in. There, there are also situations where guardian ad litems are required to come in in the middle of divorce proceedings. This is you know, you've seen probably messy divorces before where both parents are levying allegations against one another to try to get leverage in terms of custody and child support, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so one parent throws out there, my husband sexually abused my daughter. Well, now that's a serious allegation. I have to get involved in that, too. And I have been involved in those. Not as much. Um, the family law side of this stuff isn't nearly as fun as the juvenile court stuff. No, the, the thing that defines law is conflict. Right. I mean, you don't get lawyers involved. Um, basically, what the court is, is it's a, a way of resolving fights without duels. Ah. And so the, any any area of law that you will study in law school is inherently about the uh, <laughs> the worst possible situations involving a particular topic. Right. So family law is about family fights. It's the hard cases. Typically. It's about the, the ways it can break down to the point where there are questions that need to be resolved in a court. Right. And so fundamentally law is the navigation of conflict on behalf of another. Right. Very well said. So at this point, uh, you're introduced to, I'm interested in the more, less the procedure and more about the role. Sure. So uh, where do you come in there? So obviously I'm going to be wearing a couple different hats there. I'm an attorney, right? And I represent the best interests of the children, which you'll notice is kind of a unique role because it's unlike the typical principal-agent relationship where you're largely beholden to your client's wishes, right? Yes. But in juvenile courts, Juveniles legally can't make legally binding decisions, right? They're not at the age of majority yet. So, so depending you have to on assume how assume all over the place. Yes, you make a lot of professional judgments that are at your discretion and you carry immense weight in the juvenile court's rulings, right? They'll, they'll give immense weight to what the guardian recommends. So one of the pressures that you're under as a as a guardian ad litem is to keep your eyes open to the entire situation and to make a judgment call imagining what would be the best for the role of the child. Yes. And one of the things that that brings in is outside information. Mm -hmm. Like you need to be aware of what 10, 20 years down the road, you need to be aware of like the, the statistics in terms of... Yes. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. unique among lawyers. I need to understand the names and trade names of hundreds of different drugs and how they interact with one another. And street I understand, names. And street names. I understand pain management clinics. I understand attachment theory there are a lot of different 
areas of information you're pulling from in order to make a separate determination. Yeah. Because again, a lazy guardian ad litem could just be seen as an additional arm of the attorney general's office, where they just support whatever the AG recommends, right? That is not your job. And there is a temptation to blur that line, especially when juvenile court is so uh, non-adversarial, right? It's generally pretty collaborative. It's supposed to be. Although, ask the public defenders how they feel about the parents in these situations, right? Uh, I had a, a case just yesterday where the, the father mouthed off to the judge, and it was about a 25-minute tirade. And From the wow, judge or from the... Both. It was oh, uh, wow. an ongoing diatribe between the two of them, and it was painful to sit through because yeah. you knew that he was sinking his own ship, right? Poor guy. Poisoning the well before the case had even really started. Um and so as a guardian ad litem, you need to be armed with that kind of knowledge so that you can perform an individual, independent assessment of the situation. Right. right? That means sometimes I have sided with the parents instead of the state. You need to be willing to disagree with both parties. Yes. Yeah. And, and I do think that a lot of times th- there's a problem with DCFS in that they fail to appreciate some of the nuances of the ramifications of what they're recommending, yeah. especially in cases where we have to remove a child from the home. It's incredibly traumatic to children to be taken out of their parents' home. Usually that means that the police have to come. Right? Mm-hmm. The police have to come with DCFS in tow, and they remove the children from the home. They're taken away in the blaring cop lights. It's incredibly traumatic for It's children. horrific, and, and it's like the most horrific thing that there could be, except suppose the, the intention is for it to be less horrific than, than the remaining. Abuse. Yes. And so it it should be used sparingly, right? And to some degree, I think we're doing an adequate job with that. To some degree, perhaps not. You've you've mentioned before that the law law swings sometimes to be more in favor of hands-off, we don't touch the parental situation, because parents have rights to to manage their their children. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's in the United States, that's a constitutionally recognized right to manage the affairs of your family. Right. It's a pendulum swinging constantly between two extremes, which is on the one end, you have children's rights, which will be enforced via state involvement, Mm -hmm. right? Now, the other side is that the parents' rights to, as the Supreme Court has said in Troxville, is the custody, care, and control of your child. Mm -hmm. And those are both sacrosanct fundamental rights that are at odds sometimes. And and this is is the thing that you need to understand about rights, is rights are inherently in conflict all the time. They are. And so you can find a situation where two rights will overlap in a way where you got to choose one. Mm-hmm. And so the, the question is, are you choosing the right one in that scenario? Yeah, and, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, but we've never really bothered to go through a proper categorical hierarchy of the rights as to which ones are more versus less important. I don't think that works uh, because all rights would be operating all the time, and it's more a question of in under what situations will one trump another. Right. I mean, some things will trump right to life on occasion. Sure. Um, other things, right, right to life trumps all the time. Well, much of the time, but clearly not all, because if there's exceptions. And that depends on who you're talking to and their value judgments. Yep. Right? And so we'll probably talk about that a little bit later with some sociopolitical disagreements that we've gotten into. Not yes. you and me, but people that we Discussed, with. yeah. Right. So where were we? Well, we started talking about rights and the pendulum swing between uh, the state taking kids because it's in the best interest of the kids and the home situation is horrible, as opposed to the rights that the parents in that home have, uh, the right that they have to to take care of their children. Right. And so those are constantly in flux and the pendulum is swinging. And the goal is hopefully to find the proper equilibrium, right, where those rights are both given equal representation in the law. I think for a very long time, Utah and probably most of the United States was probably a little too far in favor of parents' rights just general government non-intervention, a lot of children, I believe, probably suffered in silence. 
nowadays, with everybody being a mandatory reporter, with DCFS being as well-funded as it is, and being as trigger-happy about removing kids from homes as they are, I think the pendulum has swung a little too far in favor of government intervention yeah. in, in parents' lives. Now, the Utah Code gives tremendous lip service, great language, saying that, you know, parents' rights are sacrosanct, that non-intervention into how they parent their children is a fundamental right and the public policy of the state, that we always prefer to keep biological families together and unified if that can be safely possible, right? Mm -hmm. In practice, though, I think we have been found wanting in recent decades, and this is probably most apparent, I would say, in how our appellate procedure has shaped out. So we've been talking a lot about some of the appeals I worked on. Sure. Because I, I've also worked with the public defenders in the juvenile and appellate divisions. I, I've uh, gone back and forth between the two offices at Which separate is a times. Cool experience to, yes. to understand how both offices work. I mean, they both provide incredible roles. And I'm, mm -hmm. I want to geek out about this for just one second. Go for it. Um, the, the public prosecutor has a role that's pretty easy to see. They're like a defender of society. They're trying to sure. put away the bad guys and defend the victims. Yeah. And, or see that justice is done on behalf of the victims. And then the public defenders or the de criminal defenders, I mean, that's a role which you could easily say is kind of yucky because they're defending bad people. But all the rights... Alleged bad people. Alleged bad people. <laughs> that, that's one of the major keys. The other key is that uh, if you look at the, the Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution, which has all these rights about uh, you have a right to remain silent, you have a right to a jury by your peers, you have a right to all these things. The only reason any of those rights have any teeth is because of public defenders, yes. which means they are the defenders of the individual against the might of the state. Something I, I've really latched onto is something that our county attorney, David Levitt, has said repeatedly, is that the prosecution keeps us safe, but the defense keeps us free. And those are two also fundamental things that are always in conflict, yep. and the law is trying to mediate between those two, right? So here we are talking about opposing forces and finding equilibrium. Um, yeah, and, and the trouble with uh, taking kids from their parents is uh, false false positives, right? So yes. it, it seems like there's abuse, or so-and-so said there was abuse, or even a false accusation says right. that there's abuse, and suddenly, poof, you take away the kids. Horrible trauma to everybody. Rights trampled on all over the place. Yes, the that needs to be done sober-mindedly. Yes. Sure. The danger on the opposite side is false negatives, where you say, well, it doesn't. we can't quite prove that there's abuse, but there is horrific, awful right. abuse. Yeah, and sometimes... They don't intervene when they should have, and, and the most horrific circumstances imaginable happen. And, and that is all true. I respect that. I, I will say, after my uh, second year, I spent the summer with the public defenders, and I originally went there to kind of do behind-enemy-lines research because I thought I was going back to the Guardian Adams office. But I will tell you that I drank the Kool-Aid of the public defender's mission, which is that I, I really do believe that it is a sacrosanct mission they have to protect the rights of the accused. And again, our system does not function, it does not operate, if there isn't someone willing to do that. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that you agree with or support their decisions. It doesn't mean you approve morally of who they are. You don't have to. The glory of being defense counsel is that you're there just to make sure that their rights are not trampled upon. And to me, I... I can hardly think of a more noble Nobility. Point. There's yeah. so much nobility there. And, and I mean... It kind of blew my mind. We, we both took a class from uh, a former criminal prosecutor. Yes. And that criminal law class was fantastic. Amazing class. And one of the things that struck me is by by pro, by, hmm, by personality, I think I lean more toward the seeing the nobility and the mission of the public defender. Yeah. Like the, the individual against the state is something that, I don't know, just rings a little bit more for me. Well, it's an inherently conservative position. And it, it knowing what be. I know about you, I, I it think... Can be. Well, Scalia in particular, people don't realize this about him, was actually a staunch defender of criminal justice reform. Yeah. Uh, and 
Neil Gorsuch, his heir apparent, is largely the same way, right? I, I think people have forgotten that it was inherently a more conservative principle. Yeah, the individual versus the might of the collective. Right. And then taking that class from him and seeing how, seeing his moral character and seeing the way that uh, he was able to speak on the behalf of the prosecutor representing the interests of the victim and representing the interests of society as a whole mm-hmm. and order as a, as a, as a holy principle, um, really blew my mind because now I see the nobility in both and that's kind of a cool position to be in. I think I could take either one of those sides and feel that I was doing a civic service. That's what makes the practice of law so hard. <laughs> well, if, if, and good. And good. And good. And also so necessary because if you can see that there's good in both sides then you understand why the conflict is hard. Yes. And therefore why you need to work through it with your eyes wide open. Right. So. Part of what transformed my opinion of the public defenders and their mission was this work I was doing on their appeals, right? So I was working a lot on child welfare appeals, which again, child welfare is what the guardian ad litem is getting involved in, right? Abuse, neglect, dependency proceedings. Um, So I was filing appeals and writing briefs from cases where we believe that parents' rights were unjustly terminated. And I learned that the appellate procedure in Utah is structured in such a way that I don't think the rights of the parents in these proceedings are being adequately defended at the next highest level. And this level. is because of the standard of review. Yes. So standard of review, if you guys don't know, governs your lives to a much higher degree than you're probably aware. Standard of review is the degree of scrutiny with which the appellate court will examine the trial court's ruling. So trial court makes a ruling. That's the one where you uh, have, he did it, she did it, you're establishing facts, you're saying this is the murder knife. All the, all the stuff that you imagine right. in a trial case is done on the trial level. Yes. And these are courts of fact, not courts of law. So they're just trying to apply the facts to the law that's it, that's done. But there's True. but there is a legal determination that they're yeah. making in applying those facts to the law. By making the, that determination, they're they're basically articulating what the law is, and there's a right. whole bunch of areas where they could misapply the law. Yeah, and then sure. That and that's the idea ruled. of having appellate courts. Is they're also termed courts of last resort, right? That's a pretty sacred mission, I think, and a pretty sobering aspect of their calling that I don't think is always being upheld. Sure. To be totally honest with you. Um, hopefully this doesn't get used against me in 15 years when I apply for a judgeship. Um, but I've noticed that for one, there are separate appellate procedures for child welfare appeals. The briefs by rule are required to be shorter. Mm-hmm. The timelines are a little bit shortened. It, it, to me, it looks like they're, the fact that they've made separate appellate procedures just for child welfare appeals signifies that they're not taking these cases as seriously as they mm. need to be. Right, and, and so that's my first concern. The second is with the standard of review. Part of that is also that the shorter standard is given that you're not a child forever, and so you only have so much time to get that appeal in. Sure, I, I wonder to, the, to what degree that was part of the impetus behind that decision. Yeah. I have no idea, to be honest. So for the standard of review, the question is, you're now at this higher court, you've appealed and said, this court, the lower court, got it wrong. Got it wrong. So you're now in the court of last resort, and the question is, how wrong did they have to get it before they change what they did? And that'll depend on what kind of question they're answering. So you'll notice that, again, trial courts are largely fact finders, sure. right? Questions of fact are different than the legal conclusions that they make. And so courts, appellate courts, will apply different standards of review, as that means levels of scrutiny, based on whether it's a question of fact or a question of law. The question of fact is just some simple fact and evidence. He said this. I, I don't know. There, there's all he kinds of... He said this. This was the weapon. This is how he died. That kind of stuff. Yes. Those are questions of fact. But 
the this legal conclusion. This is how much drugs he had in his car. Yes. That kind of thing. The legal conclusion say this man did commit first degree murder. There was malice aforethought. There was planning. Clearly, he is guilty of first degree murder. That is a legal conclusion, right? And so those two elements can be examined separately and they can be examined with different levels of scrutiny. So appellate courts have decided that because trial courts are in a better position to evaluate the credibility of witnesses, their body language, things that aren't immediately apparent from the record. And the appellate court doesn't see the people. They only see the written record. They only see the written record. And, to see if something went wrong. And the appellate counsel, who are making oral arguments on these. Sure. A lot of the times, if it gets that far. No. But they're not looking at any new facts. So you're no. not adding any new facts at all. It's purely, did the court get it wrong based off of the written record of what the lower court did? Right. And the no new facts part is also difficult in cases where we've been working ongoing with a family for 18 months. And yes. now all of a sudden, there the are new developments. Changed. Right. So... Questions of facts are generally given higher deference in that regard. Generally, appellate courts are only going to overrule a trial court's fact-finding, that is a, a decision about what a, a particular fact was. Say they believe he, his account over a conflicting witness's account. They're only going to overturn that for clear error, right? If Which it's is, absolutely obvious that there's yes. no reasonable judge under any circumstances that should have reached that conclusion. Right. And Which it, is I, a really high standard. Yeah. It, most of the time that means that most of these factual determinations are not going to be overturned. Yeah. Now, that isn't to say that they might look more closely at how they weighed the various pieces of evidence. That might be a different standard, and they might be a little bit more critical about the trial court focusing too much on one piece of evidence at the expense of other ones. But that bleeds into the second half of this, which is the legal conclusion, right? Pure questions of law are reviewed what's called de novo, or as new. As new. Right. And so it means that on appeal, they give no difference at all to what the trial court said, because these are the courts of law. These are the courts that determine what the law actually says and whether the trial court correctly applied it. Right. The real difficult question, and this is where child welfare appeals are so interesting, is what do you do with mixed questions of law and fact, where you have fact intensive inquiries that produce a legal conclusion. Right. And so an questions of enough. So how much abuse and neglect and drug use and refusal to change is enough? And, and that's a legal question where that threshold is. But when you're mixing like 10 different variables, it's really hard yes. to say where that cutoff is. And that cutoff is intimately linked with the specific facts on the ground. Right. And because in many of these child welfare appeals, these cases have been going on for 12, 18 months, there is a massive paper trail. There's a massive record of evidence, right? All of that goes into a huge record. Yeah. And I once had a record that was 3,000 pages. And I had to parse through all of it to find the, the legally significant parts to appeal on, right? That was Ugh. difficult. Um, and so the Utah Court of Appeal and the Utah Supreme Court have decided that whether or not a parent's rights were unjustly terminated is a mixed question of law and fact, and they're going to apply the lower standard of review, the, the highly deferential clear error standard to that. The problem is there is a fundamental right at stake here, yeah. the parent's right to the custody, care, and control of their children. Termination of parental rights is supposed to be a drastic measure. It's supposed to be used only in cases where it's absolutely, or as the statute would say, strictly necessary. So for one, you need to find the grounds for termination. This is probably the easiest part, is you have to say there is evidence of, of abuse of a particular kind that warrants termination. Or the, the easiest one is abandonment. If the parent has just taken off and has had no involvement with the case for a year or so, 
abandonment's pretty easy to prove. You can get that right there. Um, some of the other grounds are a little bit harder, more complex. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, the thing is, even if those grounds are present, you still have to prove that it is in the best interest of the child to terminate the parent's rights to the child. Better than. And, and this is the awful thing because being, having, being taken away from your parents and put in a foster home is not a good outcome. Right. It's not good. The question is, is it less bad? Is it less bad than remaining with an abusive parent? Yeah. Right. And this is where the guardian ad litem's job is so sacrosanct, right? And so critical that you are not just another arm of the state because the state has already decided that it is in the best interest, right? Mm -hmm. They've already made that determination. They're arguing that. It is critical that you're doing your own independent evaluation of that. And sometimes I think in these appeals, the guardian ad litem has generally just followed along with the state. And that is a problem. Um, so best interest of the child has to be in favor of terminating the parent's rights because that means they no longer have any right to even visitation, right? To say nothing of physical custody of the child. They have no legal custody either. So they have no right to ever see this child again. And when the child comes of age and ages out of the system and reaches the age of majority, they can do what they want. But during the period of that child's minority status, that right who's, the parent whose rights have been terminated has no involvement generally. So that's something that needs to be used only in the rarest of circumstances. And therefore, the, the trigger, so when you're at that court of appeal, should be de novo review, where they're looking at it again, giving them that last chance, rather than saying, yes. we're only going to overturn this if it's clear and obvious, red and white, I mean, black and white, right. on the page. And, and this is where up. these appeals we're working on right now are so fascinating to me, is that we have other situations where there are mixed questions of law and fact presented to the appellate court where they've decided that because the right at issue is so fundamental, notwithstanding it's a mixed question of law and fact and a fact-intensive inquiry, they're going to review it under a less deferential standard anyway. So they'll apply de novo review to that. And some examples in Utah are, say, whether a criminal defendant was in custody. So that's a, a critical part of whether or not somebody's entitled to be read their Miranda rights, right? They have to actually be in physical police custody before sure. it's required, before that right attaches, okay? But that right is super important. Yes, so... it's a critical right under the Fifth and by extension the Fourteenth Amendments. Sure. And so the appellate court of Utah has decided that that is critical enough of a right that it warrants a less deferential standard of review. Another example is Fourth Amendment search and seizures, whether or not something was a, a search, whether or not something was a seizure, whether it was improper under the Fourth Amendment is a question of law and fact. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very fact specific. Where but, were you? Where was the border? Where's the edge of the cell? Did the police actually grab you? All these very right. Did you have a custodial things. interest to the property in question? How much like, police, inf it, it, again, it's an enough question. How much police involvement mm -hmm. was enough to make it custody? Right. Without yeah. using the magic word, you're now in custody. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, I mean, the word isn't enough. It's. And so, again, the Utah Supreme Court said this right, your protection against unreasonable searches and seizures under the Fourth and by incorporation of the Fourteenth Amendments, is too critical to allow for a less deferential standard of review. Now, here we are talking about the parents' rights to their children, mm -hmm. which the Supreme Court itself of the United States, not Utah, has said is probably one of the oldest fundamental liberty interests that our Constitution protects. It's so old, it probably predates the Constitution. It's you know, given aboriginal status in that effect, to borrow an Indian law phrase we've been talking about. Um, Something that existed even before government existed. Yes. It's just by nature part of who you are. Yeah. And we have decided that that is so critical a right, and yet we're applying a less or a higher deferential standard of review 
uh, where we're only going to overturn it for clear error, even though these courts are the courts of last resort in ins- ensuring that proper procedure was followed. Yeah. Um, Which that, also affects how fast the law changes, because uh, in, in the common law, it's only these appellate uh, appellate. I never. I'm never sure how to pronounce that. I always say appellate. Appellate. Uh, appellate. Uh, appellate sounds more like the like the fruit, like you're eating an apple. Appellate sounds rather Canadian. I'm say. <laughs> My mother's so, from Canada. I can say that safely. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, appellate, appellate, uh, either one. Uh, the the law only changes when they get a case to work on. Yes. Where they're able to say so because they're the ones in charge of defining these boundaries. How much is enough? Mm. How much evidence is enough? And so in particular in standards of review, it's yeah. only appellate courts that can revise that. Yep. The legislative branch has no authority to tell the Supreme Court what standard of review to apply. We've tried that before and it didn't work with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Interesting. Um, really, RIFRA tried to modify standard of review. It, it tried to tell Gosh. the Supreme Court uh, what standard of review basically to apply to First Amendment violations, right? Interesting. Supreme Court said, don't you dare tell us what to do. We're going to apply what standard we have decided I applaud is their independence, but that's uh, a really fascinating thing. That that's totally in their own area. And my guess is that if the Utah state legislature were to attempt a similar thing with child welfare appeals, it would probably, probably get a similar response. Yeah. Uh, egos play a huge role in the law, whether you're a client or a judge or an attorney. It, yeah. yeah. Gosh. And there is something to be said, again, for a separation of powers and mm-hmm. checks and balances. But And there's also something to be said for how limited uh, ability of these upper-level courts to, to review. So, I mean, they know what their limits are, and the limits are what define a lot of the standard re- review stuff. Right. But one thing that's interesting is if you have a lower standard of review where it's easier to uh, look at the case and turn it over, you will have more frequent uh, redefinitions of exactly how precise that border is. Right. Which means the border will be more precise. And so one of the things that's interesting about decreasing that frequency, which happens if you raise the standard of review, which means they do it less often, mm-hmm. less frequently, probably um, means the border is going to be fuzzier. And so if you want the common law to develop, you have to have a lower standard of review or else a longer time. Uh, and that's problematic given how fast things change. Right. So those cases are ongoing. Uh, appeal is pending in that case. Oral argument is on the 20... 20- I want to say the 25th of November. I'm, I might be wrong about that date, but we'll see what happens. Is um, that public? Yes. Okay, cool. All, uh, all the appellate court's hearings, I believe, are public. Cool, 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 cool. So I am really anxious to see how that shapes out, and even though I'm at a, a different office now, I probably will go and observe. Yeah. If nothing else. I mean, I, I wrote the brief, so I have a vested interest in how it turns out. I wish you luck. Gosh, that's a fascinating issue. It's, it's interesting to me how these very technical things, like this is more what you kind of associate with the law. Sure. There are these technical rules, and it's like, well, mm-hmm. what do these rules matter? It's more about the substantive rights. And then you're like, no. It's the technical f- rules influence those. And it's funny how we all came into law school assuming we would be taught the procedural aspects of the practice of law, right? Yeah. At least I did. I believed that I was going to receive technical training. And I have only in one particular sense, which is how to think like a lawyer, which is so esoteric a phrase, and good luck defining it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The real practical meat and potatoes experience comes in your summers. It comes Mm. in your externships, right? It it comes actually getting to do hands-on real legal work. And I've benefited tremendously from supervisors that have trusted me with more than I really should have been, to be totally honest with you. It's an apprenticeship model, and they have fortunately taken the mentor role. Yes. And I I benefited from having good supervisors that trusted me with a lot. Um, I know a lot of uh, people from our class that have never gotten to do anything like what I've gotten to do. 
and part of that is because <laughs> self included, but I'll give you a high five too. <laughs> I thought you were high five, <laughs> <laughs> which um, <clears throat> to some degree depends on your practice area. Uh, you work in government, though; they need all the help they can get. I, I will just say it: they need tremendous help from their externs, and so they rely on them quite a bit. And if you put your best foot forward with that, you really develop a, a good reputation for yourself. Um, so that's advice to any, I don't know, incoming law students or people generally interested in what Get we do. Get involved. There's opportunities to pick up responsibility and shoulder it. Yes. And even for those of you who aren't interested in the practice of law at all, there's still a lot that you can do to contribute as just an ordinary layperson to juvenile law in particular. Uh, one thing that we also rely on in addition to guardians ad litem is what's called a CASA volunteer. So it's a court-appointed special advocate. And these are people that are just ordinary lay people that sign up for the program and they're appointed by the courts to basically befriend the child and be with them when the attorneys can't be, to have conversations that legally we probably couldn't have with them. Um, CASAs are actually a great resource. And we so need they a end lot up being a them. witness for what the child has said and done. And, yeah, and, to and some degree, wants. yes. And yeah. I mean, we could talk about hearsay problems later, but uh, CASAs do a very important work. And that's something that literally everybody who's watching this podcast can participate in, as long as you're an adult. Yeah. Gosh. Well, that's cool. Thank you. Really, this is a, it's an all hands on deck effort, I yeah. believe. And that's what I love about this area of the law. And I think using this area of the law is kind of a microcosm to, I mean, what we've been doing is exploring the tensions here. Right. I mean, there, there's tensions on the government side. I mean, you want to save the child, you want to save society. Mm-hmm. And then there's tensions on the parent side. You want to preserve the rights, especially against the might of the state when it's trying to tear your child away from you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can paint the story on both sides and you realize how complicated the issue is and the, the balancing and the technical rules that influence how the real rights actually play out and how the roles of uh, the, the, pro- the prosecutor, the defender, and the, the guardian ad litem and the judge and the cost of volunteers and I mean, it all plays together in order to make the system work. And they all witness the story from a different angle. So yeah. their stories will all be different. Um, I think that's lost on us in law school sometimes. You know, we read these cases in our case books and we feel so distant from the facts that they almost don't feel like real people anymore. Mm-hmm. It's easy to forget that this is a real human being. Take a case like Paul's graph versus Long Island Railroad, right? Where uh, Wasn't that the one where the dude got his arm chopped off? No. By the railroads? You, no, this is where the mother was on the, the platform of oh, the train Oh, the station. fireworks. Man was running with a package wrapped in newspaper. He tried to get on the train. The train conductor helped pull him on. He dropped his package onto the trails, onto full the rails. Full of firecrackers. Full of fireworks, which blew up and caused a ruckus in the train station, knocked over a luggage scale, which crushed the woman's leg. On the other end of the platform. On the other end of the platform, and she ended up with... Uh, a stutter, I think, uh, some kind of uh, Psychological speech impediment, well. and and had severe damage to her leg. So the question is, like, how responsible is he? Is he responsible enough for us to haul him into court and make him pay for this it? This is again, from just a purely philosophical standpoint, this is one of the most interesting cases you'll ever read. But it's really easy to to lose in that evaluation that that was a real woman. Yeah. Right? That that poor woman really got crushed by by a luggage rack. She and really had two little children. Dropped a package and suddenly is on the hook for damage on the other end of the platform. And it's right. like, how far is too far for it to still be his fault? These two railroad workers that tried to help the man onto the platform are being sued for their liability. All they did was try to help a man onto the train. 
So you've got all of these human stories that really are what shapes the law. Yeah. And what I love about actually the, the hands-on practice as opposed to you know, just studying the doctrinal law in law school. Just the theory. Is that you get to meet the actual people, the faces behind these cases. And a lot of times I, I think it, you're supposed to come away with that, with, with greater empathy, with greater charity for people. Um, I don't hate any of the parents I've worked with. I, I've worked with horrific abusers. I've worked with rapists. I've worked with psychopaths, medically diagnosed psychopaths. I've worked with a, a murderer. I've worked with someone who killed his newborn baby in a rage. I, I've worked with all of these people before, and I don't hate them. And I need to say that is one of your gifts. I, I am I'm deeply impressed, uh, Jack. Your, your ability to love people and be objective at the same time. And, and this type of work, if I did it, I think it would scar me. Um, Most people can't do it. Yeah, but you're able to do it and then come home and still be good and not jaded. And the, the ability to be empathetic in the moment, including with people who you might otherwise hate. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's a superpower. I'll, I'll tell you a story about that. This is probably the most transformational experience I've had in law school. And, and this is what's helped shape what you say are my character attributes in that regard. Um, I, I think it. I so, think it. So I was with my supervising attorney. This is my, my first summer, right? Um, we met this girl. We did a home visit. She is, she'd been removed from her parents' care and was living with her aunt and uncle. Well, she called them aunt and uncle. I think they were actually her grandfather and, and grandmother. She called them aunt and uncle for some reason. Uh, who am I to judge in that? Um, her mother had beaten her every day when she was a, an infant and then abandoned her when she was two years old. Um, her mother was... Uh, a foreigner. I don't think she actually was uh, a documented citizen. I, I think she was from the Pacific Islands. Uh, so this child's middle name was, I think, 27 syllables long. It was very hard typing that on a motion. Um, and so she had been raised mostly by her father. Um, and she didn't understand that her father had been sexually abusing her until she went to health class as a ninth grader. So she went to ninth grade health class and learned about sex for what I think was the first time and realized that her father had been raping her every night for for most of her life. She was 14 at this point. Horrific stuff, right? Uh, he also beat her on the regular. She had bruises all over her back. This is horrible. Um, it, it was hard and I apologize. Maybe we should have had a trigger warning or something before we got into this. But I heard about all of this dad's abuses and his malfeasance before ever having met him. And so I remember shaking that poor girl's hand and she was so sweet, and she had overcome so much in her life that I wanted to, to say to myself, I don't feel anything for this father. I hate him. And it was really easy to say, this person deserves to rot in jail for the rest of his life. And being totally objective, he should never be let out of prison. He shouldn't be. That doesn't mean, however, that my hatred of him was justified. And so I, I showed up to the courthouse the day of a hearing that we had scheduled. So. We were hoping to do two things. We had filed a motion for a name change. She wanted to legally change her name so that she no longer had her father's last name. For obvious reasons, she wanted to detach herself from the stain of her father on her. Um, and so we filed a motion for that. We also were hoping to grant her aunt and uncle, grandma and grandpa, whoever they were, uh, permanent custody and guardianship of her, which is different than terminating the father's parental rights. Um, but of course, he wasn't going to be able to visit her while he was in prison pending his criminal trial. Um, and so 
we didn't want to move forward with termination just yet because one, the father's criminal charges were ongoing. It was going to take a long time. Two, he was going to fight it because he and his attorney, who was a real bulldog of an attorney, had fought everything to this point and had stood up in court and called her a, a liar and a miscreant and all kinds of things. And so, but you kind of have to in order in order for him to have any chance. I mean, he has to be able to say you can't prove her story, and that means you have to could do that. What she said. Either that which, or you just admit to it, which most people in yeah. juvenile court, they do cop to what they've done. Most of the time they actually do. Which Again, because of the remedial system we've set in place. Yeah. Now, I do want to sing the praises of the adversarial system that we have. It ensures that adults' rights are protected, right? But in a more collaborative sense, mm -hmm. some of that will be lost in the interest of just cutting through the crap, as yep. uh, one of my favorite judges likes to say. And so... He had fought everything to this point, which means we knew that if we were going to move forward to petition for uh, terminating his parental rights, we were going to have to go to trial on this. And that means she would have to testify. And probably the most traumatic thing for abused children is to have to face their abusers in court, mm. which most of the time they will. Remember the confrontation clause of the Sixth Amendment. You have a right to confront your accusers against you. That means that with very few exceptions, I think with closed circuit television now, you can get around that a little bit you have to testify to all the, you have to recount all of the horrible things that were done to you. In the presence of the person. Probably in the presence of your abuser or knowing that he's watching you on TV, which is hardly better, right? And so we encouraged her very strongly to wait on that. So, so we show up to court hoping to accomplish these two things. Uh, the father surprisingly doesn't fight the name change at all. Um, which made me really happy because I spent a long time drafting that thing <laughs> with, uh, with her 27-syllable middle name. It took a very long time to draft that. Um, and so I was thrilled and, and frankly surprised that after hearing about what a bulldog this man had been all the way through this, that he didn't put up a fight with that at all. I remember right when that hearing was about to start, I had this good feeling in my heart that things were going to be all right. Um, and as, as an intern, especially as a, a first-year intern, I felt like it was my duty to hold the door open for people. Um, so usually I, I still do this, actually. As I, I, whenever I go into court, I hold the door open for everyone else going through. Most of the time, people don't say thank you. Um, I held the door open, and this short, disheveled, sloppy-looking man shuffles his way into the courtroom, and he says, thank you. And I realized that that was the father. And I finally had a face to put with this man who had done these things. And I remember being surprised at how pathetic he looked. Um, and so he doesn't fight the name change, and now comes you know, the real kicker here. Is he going to stipulate to permanent custody and guardianship? Um, he can fight it. You know, he still has his parents' rights, and we haven't proven yet that he actually committed any of these abuses. abuses. Um, and he says, Your Honor, I just want my daughter to be happy. Um, and so we won on both counts by by him by him admitting, just by, by, by him just allowing up. right allowing wow he just gave up uh, and he looked so broken and pathetic i think he knew at that point that the writing was on the wall that he was never going to have that life with her again and he was probably going to prison for a very long time and that case it might not even be over yet to be honest it's been a year and a half it, it might still be ongoing um the criminal charges were pretty fresh when i was involved at this stage mm. um and so the last thing the judge asked before closing the hearing was he turned to the 14-year-old girl and asked if she had anything to say. And so she stood up and she looked at her father and said, I still love you, Dad. Um, she said, I forgive you for everything you've done. And 
I think we have, what did she, how did she say it? We have some things in our relationship that need to be worked out, but I don't want to lose the memory of you. That's amazing for a, for a 14 year old girl to say that. Possibly that unhealthy, but I, I mean, th there's, there's, there's this thing where you need to punish wrongdoing, uh, but you, yeah. you can do it without uh, rancor. Well, one thing I've, I've learned from criminal, the criminal side of things as well as uh, child welfare is that there's this strange bond that forms between victim and perpetrator sometimes. Yeah. And the most incredible and inspiring moments, I think, in human life are when you see somebody who's been wronged stand up and say, I forgive you, and really mean it, right? I, I, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life was, was in the courtroom that day. It, it reminded me of um, this famous video on YouTube of uh, Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Have you ever seen this video? Mm -hmm. it was, uh, when they do a sentencing hearing on a criminal case, they always allow uh, the families of the victims to get up and... and say their piece basically and obviously this man had committed a lot of a lot of murders so he there was a long list of people lining up to spew vitriol at him totally deserved of course but one uh, father of one of the victims got up and he said I forgive you he said you've made it difficult for me to live my Christian heritage but I still believe I'm supposed to forgive everyone and so in those moments, they almost become advocates for their abusers. And so I thought about that, um, and not to get too spiritual or religious here, but I, I thought about how, in a very real way, I am an abuser of myself. Not in the sense that I've abused a child ever, but every time I've made a mistake, you know, I believe in a savior. I believe in an atonement. Right? I believe that somebody else has suffered and died for my sins. And, and, that and in order to believe that, you have to believe that you have sins. Right. And yeah. I have to believe that when he's suffering in the garden and pleading, take this cup from me, that I'm the one causing him to be there. And so in a very real sense, I'm an abuser myself. So therefore, judge not. And that's a, that was a difficult moment of realization I had to come to, but I can thank that man for that. And again, uh, it is justice that he remain in prison probably for the rest of his life, and he probably will. But the mercy side of it is that I can forgive him and see him as a brother in Christ anyway. Yeah. And so I honestly don't know that you can have that experience in too many other aspects of the law, right? What an interesting and thing. The, the one time, so I, I haven't had many courtroom experiences uh, mm. in law school. I've, I've only had the one or two observations. And Door's still open to come with me anytime <laughs> you want. You know, I might take you up on that. I think you should. Yeah. The, uh, the, the one time that I went as part of the criminal law class, I, I was just shocked at how much mercy was in the room, how, how well the process worked with the for and the against and the judge ruling. And yeah. uh, in, in this particular case, there, there's a, a funny expression that uh, criminal lawyers treat each other civilly and that <laughs> civil lawyers treat each other the criminally. criminally. Definitely holds true from what I've seen. It's, you know, funny, but I, that, that is amazing. It is amazing when it works well. It is mm. uh, incredible. Yeah. So th there's nothing in the world like that. A, a courtroom, honestly, to me, feels like a, a hospital. It feels like a church in a way. There's usually the spirit that pervades the proceedings, at least that I feel. And that holds true even when there are really bad people in the room. Yeah. And then even when there's not proper decorum and uh, you have a, a father screaming about how DCFS is conspiring to kidnap his children and they're paid by the baby to take them out of his house and the judge throws the book at him in, in response, there's still a, a spirit of calmness that I have in there. And so the courtroom is starting to feel like a home away from home for me. It's probably where I'm going to spend most of my time. Amen. Hallelujah. And so I, I feel like I've this latched on to... This is so onto, cool. That it's, it's like... Uh, there are these concepts that are, 
are sacred of rights. Right. Of of rights and uh, I mean on both sides. And the, the trouble is like you could see the the courtroom is an incredibly profane thing because somebody's rights are not going to win the day. Right. Because you have to resolve this conflict between two rights, but the the respect that they are both given, the time and procedure that they're given, the I mean it, it is they they are honored. I, I think and the proper definition of fundamental rights has probably been uh, distorted a lot over time. I think the, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence the last 50 or so years with regards to what counts as a fundamental right is, has really muddied the waters a little bit. And maybe to some extent the phrase has been bastardized a little bit. But it's a lot easier to see the human connection between a person's humanity and their fundamental rights as a person when you actually see them, yeah. when you're actually in the courtroom with them. And so I encourage everybody I can to come observe that. Because in a lot of ways, what's happening in the juvenile court, and, and you touched on this earlier, is a microcosm of society's difficulties at large, right? We talk a lot about the opiate crisis. Let me tell you, it is front and center in the juvenile court. Uh, we talk about the epidemic of pornography and how it's plaguing our young kids. Guess how many juvenile delinquents I've seen who perpetrated sexually on their siblings because of something they saw in pornography? probably a couple a week, you know? And so in a very real sense, it feels like these, these courtroom experiences are ground zero for the battle for society's soul. And I get to be a part of that. You know, I actually get to be instrumental in fomenting change. And hopefully for the better, I, I do my best. But there's part of the reason that the profession is so demanding and the barrier to entry is so high is that that's a very high responsibility. Yeah. With that, we've probably better wrap it up. We've been talking for almost an hour. Um, there's so much here to talk about. I mean, thank you. Thank you so much. This yes, has been welcome. awesome. Um, if you are interested in, uh, in more, uh, you can find our uh, social media information below, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.